If you want something, you go out there and get it. If you want to see something in the world, you go out there and create it rather than the idea of, eh, I wish someone else would do this because that would be sweet. You know, just waiting around for someone else to be the change you want to see in the world. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Leones, bienvenidos to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Don't worry, I wasn't going to actually attempt to do an entire show in Spanish. Although I thought about it, I'm not going to lie. But yes, you are here once again at the Lions of Liberty podcast, your home, as always, for great conversations about the ideas of liberty. And we're doing it again today here in this, the 266th episode of this program, which means that you can find today's show notes featuring links to everything we discuss over at lionsofliberty.com slash 266. And I know many of you out there are facing major healthcare decisions, especially right now with the open enrollment period for 2017 having just begun. I want to encourage you to check out today's sponsors, Health Excellence Select. They have set up the ultimate free market, affordable alternative to Obamacare that you absolutely must check out. Learn more at lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today describes himself as a libertarian, atheist, anarcho-capitalist, anti-feminist, melanin-abled patriarch. He has a popular YouTube channel where he discusses the ideas of liberty. He is also a writer whose work can be found at FEE.org, the Foundation for Economic Freedom. He is known on YouTube as That Guy T. He is the one and only Talid Brown. Talid, are you ready to roar? Roar! <laughs> I that am. was almost like a soothing roar. I really, I like that one. <laughs> yeah, it's a cool roar, right? Yeah, like a chill lion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to lead, as I mentioned, not only do you have a popular YouTube channel, I feel like I really got to toss this number out there because it's, it's really impressive to me. You have 80,000, over 80,000 YouTube subscribers. So there's a lot of people out there listening to what you're doing, watching your YouTube videos. We're going to get into the kind of stuff you're talking about in, in a minute. But first, I want to learn a little bit more about you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up and what were your politics growing up? When did you first become introduced to, to politics and how did you end up you know, learning about the ideas of liberty? Well, growing up, I was never really too political. I mean, average, middle, suburban lifestyle in Atlanta, you know, public school, video games, nothing outlandish that you would think would drive me towards politics. I think that the first time I ever took interest in politics was when Obama was, when he was first elected in 2008. And that was mainly because Ludacris made a uh, pretty kick-ass music video in favor of him. And it was it was kind of on point. So that was a little bit of bias from on my end. But outside of that, I was mostly apolitical. My parents were apolitical. It never really came up in discussion. Um, so I guess, you know, from there, there was really nothing that would have led me down the road of politics prior. But I did in um, my later years my later teenage years, kind of like end of high school area, I did start listening to Alex Jones. And that Uh was mainly because, (laughs) yeah, of course, right? And that was mainly because of my fascination with end of the world scenarios. I mean, school sucked. I mean, I was tired and bored. I'm like, come on, can the world just end so I can just, you know, take my shotgun and go kill zombies all day? That's this. That's my career path that I'm destined to follow. Did you stock up on, on water filters and vitamins and that kind of thing? 
I tried, you know, I tried convincing my mom to buy water and buy soy packs and fake beans and stuff. And she just looked at me like I was crazy. So, and I didn't have any money. So that didn't really work out. But yeah. And after, after that, you know, outside of Alex Jones is crazy, you know, water filters and all the frogs turning gay and stuff like that. He did every now and then inject this little thing called Liberty into his message. And whenever I heard about it, I was like, you know what? Yeah, that is kind of a um, good thing because I've always been in favor of, you know, in like capitalism, individualism, you know, making your own money, acquiring wealth, gun rights and things like that. When you say you were always in favor of that stuff, did that just kind of come naturally to you? Did those just seem like logical positions to take? They weren't really influenced by outside sources in your life? I mean, or is that the kind of politics you sort of grew up around at all? Well, no, I would say it just came naturally because it really wasn't, you know, I didn't like capitalism or things like that because of any political thing. I just knew that, you know, wealth meant, you know, a good life, you know, having money meant that you could have nice things, you know, and, you know, I enjoy nice things, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, you know, complete materialist. Like when I was growing up, I liked video games and nice shoes and different, you know, new electronics and cell phones that were coming out, you know, so all that stuff fascinated me, technology in particular and guns, you know, I never really grew up around really shooting guns that much, but I just love like gun action movies like Mr. and Mrs. Smith and shit like that. It was amazing. It's stuff that just naturally seemed cool to you. I mean, obviously yeah. you realize that, okay, I like video games. I like cool shoes. These things cost money. So it's pretty impressive when you can <laughs> see out there, you can see entrepreneurs and people that, that are able to generate wealth. And I think it's awesome that these are the kind of people that you looked at as role models because today so many people see, say, the president as their role model or just any political figure or even just random actors or rappers. But it seems like you really were more attracted to the entrepreneurs and people that made something of themselves. Yeah, and particularly the entrepreneurs that didn't go the traditional route. You know, I mean, I didn't go to college and I pursued any post-secondary education. One, because no field that I really wanted to go into really necessarily needed higher education. And two, I just really don't like having student loan debt or any debt, really. So that was no bueno for me. But I just like the idea of entrepreneurs who, you know, made their money fresh out of high school. You know, they just had an idea. They went for it. They hustled. They actually, you know, took it upon themselves, to actually make their own money. And most of those are the ones who become the multi-billionaires, you know, and I've always admired that, you know, kind of like hard hustle and, you know, grind and, you know, that mentality of if you want something, you go out there and get it. If you want to see something in the world, you go out there and create it rather than, the idea of, eh, I wish someone else would do this because that would be sweet. You know, just waiting around for someone else to be the change you want to see in the world. So how did that general attitude, uh, obviously you were, you're probably already thinking along different lines than a lot of your peers. So how did that lead you to really get into the nitty gritty here of the ideas of liberty to go all the way down this libertarian, uh, anarcho-capitalist, whatever you want to call it, rabbit hole? I'm not sure exactly when it first started, but it just kind of was like a slow process of being interested in politics and not so much just interested in politics, but interested in ideas. And many of the ideas I was discussing just happened to be centered around politics. So, you know, I just love debate and discussion and going through different concepts and for things and thinking about different things and challenging my own views and working them out like kind of like a puzzle and trying to figure out what fits, what doesn't, what works, what needs to be, you know, refined so I can make my arguments better. 
And from there, that just led me more and more towards libertarianism. You know, I mean, I don't I don't want this to come off like a narcissistic point of view or anything, but it was just really a rational thought pattern and path for me to just examine my own positions, introspect and adapt, you know, correct information. And that just led me more and more towards libertarianism and eventually anarcho-capitalism through things like, you know, I've watched people like John Stossel, Julie Borowski, a lot of other YouTubers, people like Tom Woods. I never really did a lot of reading in, in terms of like um, Hayek or Rothbard or anything like that. I, ha- I still have the attention span of a decently educated squirrel, but <laughs> I can't sit down and read a 4,000 page book. You didn't want to spend three years reading uh, Man, Economy and State? That didn't appeal to you? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I had some other stuff I had to get done in that time, so that, that I didn't have time to dedicate it. But surprisingly, most of the information that I got was from just regular people on Twitter, you know, just going through different ideas and talking to different people on Twitter and, you know, having them combat my ideas and just, you know, going through different information that they give me and that I give them and anything else that comes about. And from there, you know, six months later, after actually becoming pretty well off libertarian, I became an narco capitalist. And also my first paycheck where I noticed that every month I was missing $25 out of my check for Social Security. That pissed me off, too. Oh, boy, do I hearken back to the days when I only had $25 missing from my paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> I would kill for that right now. But yeah, it's really interesting to me also that you point out that it was really your interactions with people on social media that really helped you refine those ideas and challenge a lot of your beliefs. And I think there, there's a couple of things I take away from that. One is just that you were opening to having your beliefs challenged because I, I think and I'm not excluding libertarians from this whatsoever. A huge problem out there is so many people, they figure out their beliefs and then they've got it figured out. So therefore, all they have to do is punch away at everyone who comes after them as opposed to actually letting them into their box or to the ring there with them to battle out that idea. So many people seem to not even want to let you in the ring with them to fight it out. Whereas it seems like you were really seeking that out and seeking to be challenged. And that is really the only way we're going to find what the right ideas are. Because I really do believe there is truth in the world. There really are positions that are the right ones to take, but we're never going to get to them if we just decide what our beliefs are and do not allow people to enter the arena of ideas and to challenge us. And And you so often hear, oh, you're never going to influence anyone on, on Facebook or you're never going to change anyone's mind on Twitter. Well, I got one guy right here who's is a shining example of the fact that that's not the case. And I've had more than one people, more than one person reach out to me over the years and say, you know, just so you know, I follow what you're saying on Facebook. I really like your insights. It's really changed my views on things. And And people usually only do that privately, and it's usually not the people that I think are even listening. So a lot of what I do on Facebook, whether it's just my commentary or even with this podcast, it's not necessarily for the haters. It's not for the people out there that are clicking like or putting the little angry face on there. It's for the silent observers because you know they're out there. I mean, I'm sure you haven't interacted with all 80,000 people that subscribe to you on YouTube, but they're out there. Yeah, exactly. You know, and in terms of um, in regards to what you were saying about you know, being open to having your ideas challenged, you know, I don't like proclaiming to be right if I can't defend my position. You know, if like, you know, a lot of people I've noticed, you know, when their position is challenged and they don't really have a good rebuttal, they resort to, you know, name calling, ad homs, oh, you're stupid, you know, you're wrong because you're wrong or you're you're wrong because you're immoral or they do this is one I hate the most. And, you know, everyone's guilty of it, even libertarians. They say, 
go educate yourself or go read a book, go read this book. And then you can come talk to me. And as if obviously the only reason you don't agree with them is because you haven't read this one book that, that you have to read or this <laughs> one author, you know, and, and if, if it's true that they developed, you know, beliefs from that book or what have you, they should be able to defend those beliefs directly to you, not just say, go read exactly. this book, go read Man, Economy and State. I've seen libertarians use that argument. I mean, I'm sorry, if you're going to ask everyone to go read a thousand page tome to start to understand your view, you ain't getting anywhere. Yeah, to quote Stefan Molyneux, not an argument. You know, I mean, like you said, if you can't defend your own position of ideas that you've apparently that you're so well versed at, you know, that you're claiming to be at least, and you understand and you come to this, you know, super rational, logical conclusion, if you can't, you know, express that in a Facebook debate with someone, then maybe you should go either re- start refining your communication skills. Or maybe, you know, there's something that you haven't really thought through. Maybe there is something that someone presented to you that you may just have to admit, you know what? I don't know at the time. You know, I don't have a response to this. Or actually, I never considered that. I might be wrong. And then it's okay to go back and refresh your views and recreate and um, reestablish your positions with the correct information that you received. It doesn't make you stupid. It doesn't mean that anything you've learned prior was not valuable or doesn't discredit you in any way. It just means that you're a intellectually honest person and you're actually looking to, you know, advance that intellect through respectable, you know, learning. Right. Now, I think so many people, especially in the libertarian community, especially in the libertarian community, need to take that attitude because, look, I've been a libertarian, uh, I guess, tangentially for over a decade now. I mean, I've been following the writing of Ron Paul since the early 2000s. I don't know when I actually started using that term or or decided this was a belief system I held. But, heck, I've been doing this podcast for over three years. And if I still hear – occasionally will hear an older episode because I'm a weirdo and I go back and listen to myself talking from three years ago. <laughs> I'll hear myself say something in an older episode and I'll think to myself, oh, my God, I would never say that now. I don't believe that anymore because even though I have the same general belief system, there's a lot of nuance to a lot of positions out there. We can all agree you shouldn't go assaulting someone on the street, but maybe have slightly different beliefs on, say, immigration or something like that, because not everything is spelled out, you know, by the non-aggression principle or by some simple term. A lot of issues do need some breaking down and some nuance. And and I think we always need to be open to new perspectives, even on the ideas, maybe even especially on the ideas that we hold so closely. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a really sincere and humble approach that I think most people should consider taking. I'm sure that there's stuff in my past videos that I don't believe anymore. I just don't have the stomach to go back and watch my old videos because I, I hate hearing myself talk. <laughs> I'm with you, man. I, I cannot stand my own voice. I do it. Uh, I force myself to do it out of uh, purposeful self-reflection sometimes. But <laughs> <laughs> I just have to do it because I'm when editing. And right, after yeah. that, I never look at the video again. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, let's break down some of these terms. I, I stole your little intro, my description of yourself uh, from your intro video on YouTube. And yeah, I like to keep this show pretty accessible. I like new people to be able to tune into an episode for the first time and and not be too blown away. So why don't we try to do kind of a, a simplistic breakdown of some of the words that you use to describe yourself, starting with libertarian. Now, this is a, a word that has a broad meaning and many different people have to have different meanings to it. You know, a Gary Johnson libertarian, a Murray Rothbard libertarian, a Lysander Spooner different libertarian. These may all be very different things, but what does that general term libertarian mean to you? 
Well, to me, I mean, I wish I had a streamlined definition I could use all the time. It seems like every month I find one definition of libertarianism. Like, that is perfect. That is the perfect definition of libertarianism, and I forget it in a month. And I'm like, okay, I have to figure (laughs) out something else. But I consider myself mainly a small-l libertarian, meaning I don't really affiliate or associate strongly with the libertarian party or any of the actual, you know, political ideas of libertarian. I more so identify closely with the philosophy of libertarianism and that philosophy being, you know, essentially the belief in individualism, property rights, non-aggression and capitalism, which is voluntary exchange of goods and services, usually for profit. Not always, but if you're smart enough to make money off of it, go for it. And that's pretty much what I see um, libertarianism as, just the ability for people to live their lives free and do as they see fit, so long as they aren't infringing on the natural negative rights of others, not the positive rights, you know, like free healthcare and stuff, so long as they're not infringing on those rights. And, you know, so long as they're not aggressing against anyone or, you know, aggressing against anyone's property, then you should have the right and freedom to pursue your own self-interest as you see fit. And do you see anarcho-capitalism as just a, an extension of that philosophy, as taking that philosophy to another level? Or, or do you actually separate you know, anarcho-capitalism from the overall ideas of liberty? How do you see that? Well, I think anarcho-capitalism is just more so an extension. You know, Anarcho-capitalism basically takes some other core elements that many people assume or ascribe to be something that should be collectively defended or collectively provided for like security, infrastructure, sometimes healthcare, and a few, you know, environmental protection of the commons and things like that. And it basically goes even further to say, no, you know, even basic things such as defense, you know, you don't have a right to force someone else to fund that. You don't have a right to force someone else to ascribe to your idea of defense. You have a right to self-defense. You have a right to collective self-defense, but not through involuntary measures. So, Anarcho-capitalism is basically libertarianism, like hardcore mode, but I say they're still really, really strongly compatible philosophies. And if you're to the point where you're arguing between which one is more necessary, libertarianism or anarcho-capitalism, then you're already close enough to where there's really no point in me debating you, you know, let me go talk to these other guys who still think that we need Stalinism or something like that. You're really trying to break people out of their current mindset and get them thinking down towards a certain path, not necessarily, you know, trying to get into the nitty gritty and then convince them, well, now you have to see things exactly this specific way. You're really speaking to that broader audience out there that that currently couldn't even maybe comprehend that we're even discussing individual rights or even the most basic tenets of libertarianism. Yeah, exactly. I'm not trying to make more libertarians. I'm trying to make less status. You know, you don't have to be a libertarian. You don't have to be a capitalist. You don't have to believe, you know, in profit margins or, you know, you don't have to believe in, you know, recreational marijuana or anything like that. I just want people to get to the point where they don't look to the state for the immediate go to in terms of finding a solution for their problems. I want people to get in the mindset of, you know, maybe thinking about individual action, you know, voluntary action, action that they can take through persuasive measures and actually through molding minds and molding culture rather than just threats against people, you know, through jail or or seizure of their property or taxation or whatever. You know, basically ideas or ways, methods, 
that you can change the world and make the world a better place in your eyes because we all have our own definition of what the world should look like or how it would be better off. But just trying to achieve that through means that everyone can partake in and means that, you know, you're not kind of disregarding other people's individualism, other people's right to pursue what they believe the world should look like. I think that is harder for some people to grasp. You know, it's it's not as easy as just saying, you know, if we just got government to pass a law, then that'd be that. You know, it's a lot harder to actually go through the process of trying to educate people and persuade people and actually raise money and resources and actually convince people to dedicate their time and their, you know, energy and things like that to try and advance a certain cause that you're interested in. But I think, you know, I think once people realize that they do have that power and that is effective and much more, not only morally justified, but in terms of actual outcome, in terms of, you know, being useful and practical and working well, I think that that process of going about that is far superior to the process that's currently the standard, which is go to government, get them to pass a law and be done with it. Right. You're trying to shift that Overton window a bit, that the general framework that people use to make all those other decisions about you know, what laws they support, what politicians they support, how they view the world. You're just trying to, to shift that thing over. And, and you're not focused only on the ideas of liberty. Like I mentioned there, you do focus on some different topics, I would say all of which are probably controversial to an extent. <laughs> Why don't we just touch on feminism for a minute? You describe yourself as an anti-feminist. What is it about feminism that you specifically oppose? I know a lot of A lot of people have different definitions of just what feminism is. So what is it specifically about feminism that you're opposing? Yeah. So when I first became an anti-feminist, it wasn't really on any philosophical grounds. It was mainly because of, you know, the reaction to the current feminist movement and how they behave. So it's more so of what the people who proclaim to be feminists are doing rather than what actually feminism is. That's mainly where my beef was. So, you know, the SJWs calling people racist and screaming, shouting down, you know, free speech and calling everything sexist and, you know, whining about non-factual or like, I don't want to say unreal because I feel like that might be a dick, but I'm going to say it anyway. This just unreal, nonsensical discrimination that they claim is, you know, widespread and prevalent throughout our society, you know, throughout our patriarchal society and stuff like that. That was my original beef with feminism. But as I went along with my ideas and actually started criticizing feminism more and more and actually thinking about why I dislike feminism. It's not just the actions that people are taking. It's also the ideology, you know, in terms of, I don't believe in equality in the sense that feminists do, or the sense that, you know, most left-leaning ideologies do. You know, I believe in individual freedom. I believe people should have the freedom, the right to associate, the right to their own property, the right to basically do what they want. I believe in freedom. And that is not the same as equality. You know, some people believe that, you know, if everyone's free, then that's basically equality. No, it's not. I mean, you can ask anybody on the left or any feminist, you know, you can point to two people who are free and say, are they equal because they have freedom? Their idea of equality or their belief system, which ascribes equality it would lead them to say no. They believe in, you know, um, income equality, you know, social, basically the definition of feminism is social, political, and economic equality. 
I don't like political equality. Not that I want anyone discriminated on terms of politics, but I also don't like the idea of people having equal political power to infringe on the rights of others, you know, right. basically democracy. You know, and I think that's what most feminists want when they say political equality. I'm not for that. Um, I'm also not in favor of economic equality. Again, I'm not in favor of companies discriminating against people or, you know, paying women, you know, 77 cents on a dollar or whatever. But also, I'm not in favor of forcing kind of like a streamlined base standard standardization of, you know, economic opportunity across the sexes. You know, I think that men and women should be free to pursue, you know, whatever type of economic mobility and economic achievement that they can acquire or attain by their own merits. You know, I don't think that, I mean, if some company does want to hire men only, like the NFL, for example, if they just don't want to hire women to play on their football teams, I'm sorry, but I believe that they should have the freedom to do so. I don't think that we should make that equal. You know, I don't think that we should equalize hours to where if a man wants to work 20 more hours a week than a woman and bring home more money, that we should make that equal now just for the sake of equality. And social equality, you know, I really don't even know what that one means. I believe in social freedom. You know, I believe people should be free to do what they want. I mean, you could argue that prohibition was a type of social equality because, I mean, granted the state banned alcohol, but it was banned for everyone, men and women. So that's equality, but it's not freedom. You know, those are two different concepts. And that's the reason why I currently oppose feminism. It's really the difference between advocating for a level playing field as opposed to advocating for a level result. We can't just yeah. determine the results that are going to happen through all the, the various ways that individuals and groups in society interact. And the NFL example is actually a really interesting one because, yeah, I guess I've never seen feminist groups going this far, but I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if they have. I've never seen an NFL game picketed for not having <laughs> women playing on the teams. But I don't think most women want to see women getting crushed by men on an NFL team. And I, I think we need to recognize that. There are physical differences generally. It doesn't mean there aren't such a thing as, as women who are stronger than men or men who are weaker than women. There certainly are. But generally, I mean, if a job, say, even even not just something as maybe as violent as football, but look, if a job requires lifting 80 pounds uh, consistently over the course of an eight-hour day, odds are more men are going to be qualified for that job. And that doesn't mean that women are unequal. It doesn't mean that women are lesser beings. It's just accepting the reality that gender exists and that generally men are physically more stronger. And it doesn't make me a, a crazy anti-female sexist to say that. Yeah. And even in terms of, you know, non-physical labor and jobs like that, also in terms of like intellectual jobs, you know, things like STEM fields and science and engineering and architecture and, you know, finance and politics, you know, politics, everyone sucks, but, you know, <laughs> other beneficial things that are useful to society. You know, I mean, a lot of feminists and a lot of people on the left, you know, they want, you know, they always say you want, you want equality and gender equality in, in STEM fields then you should go and pursue a STEM degree. You know, I don't see anything wrong with STEM being, you know, 90, 95, 97% male. I'm pretty sure they're not doing that on terms of discrimination. Um, I'm pretty sure there are just a lot of men who are actually interested in that subject and actually perform well in that area. So they make up the majority, just as I'm sure that there is more women who um, make up the majority in terms of um, performance and being useful and excelling 
in industries like um, cosmetology or social work or things like that. I don't complain when I go to a school and I see, you know, primarily female teachers or when I go to a um, hair salon or fashion boutique and I see primarily female fashion designers, things like that. They're good at what they do. And as long as they are providing, you know, a good quality service to the market, I don't really care about their gender. You know, I'm, that's more so a feels over reels type of thing, you know, to where it makes you feel good that you have this type of equality. But is there any real, you know, practical, tangible, beneficial outcome as a result of having, you know, equal amounts of women and men in STEM fields? I have yet to see one. You know, they may say that, you know, sociologics, you know, psychologically, you know, men and women perform better and, you know, we get more scientific results. <laughs> I haven't seen any factual data to actually back up those claims, but hey, right now STEM is doing pretty good. I'm liking the results I'm seeing. I like the offerings that Google and things like that are giving me. I don't care about their gender quotas. Feels over reels. That's a good one. I'm going to have to steal that one from you. Did you make that one up? Because that, that's a good no, one. No, <laughs> no. I took that one off someone too. <laughs> All right. So then I guess I can't give you credit. I can give you credit for taking it and realizing that you should repeat it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just give me credit for saying F intellectual property. There you go. Take care of that guy, T. All right, T. Well, one thing that is real are the very real healthcare decisions that all of us have to make, thanks to the Obamacare law, which mandates the purchase of some sort of health insurance. Well, today's sponsors, Health Excellence Select, have the perfect solution for you guys. And I'm going to take a minute out now to tell you about it. Now, I'm a freelancer, and I purchased my own health insurance, and I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. My premiums and deductibles were skyrocketing. And as someone who keeps myself pretty healthy, I knew that I was getting a raw deal for a product I simply didn't want. This caused me to seek an alternative, and I found an amazing alternative in the form of health sharing, a killer concept where healthy individuals agree to share their medical costs. That's right. It's a voluntary free market system for paying for your health care that also, thanks to an exemption, covers the Obamacare mandate. Our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch by creating a full service package to handle all of your health care needs. Trust me, I'm not just a proponent of health sharing. I'm also a client. This has been one of the greatest things I've ever done to leave the Obamacare system in favor of what our friends at Health Excellence Select are doing. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. And don't hesitate to give my man Jeff Cantor a call at 440 Four, nine. Be sure to mention Lions of Liberty. Speaking of success in the marketplace, I think it's safe to say you're experiencing success in the YouTube marketplace. I uh, know our YouTube channel, we haven't hardly done anything with. We just toss our interviews up there and we've built up a decent amount of people. But let's just say it ain't 80,000. So what is your secret to building such a huge following on YouTube? Uh, do you think it's the fact that you address head on a lot of controversial subjects and you're just not afraid to do so? Or, I mean, would you attribute things more to maybe just more also your production value and the effort that you've put into that side of things that what do you think is really the key to, to your success here well it's definitely not my production value because all i do is turn on a camera talk and do some well, light you can say that but i mean i've watched a few of your <laughs> videos and i have a very clear image the lighting is perfect i've seen a lot of others where that's just not the case so there you should give yourself a little bit of credit because i mean i think it's clear to me you do put uh, some amount of at least basic effort into the production value well, now, you know, now that my channel's grown, I've upgraded my camera equipment and my lighting. And now it looks like I kind of have a semi-professional YouTube channel. But prior, if you go back to my videos like a year ago or, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, you know, it was 
fuzzy camera, you know, different shooting angles here and there, you know, every other video lighting is whatever. If you can see me, that's good enough. Which just goes to show that you don't need to have it perfect to get started. I don't really want to encourage people to do this, but if you go back and listen to episode one of this program, we're on episode (laughs) 266 right now. If you go back to episode one, You're not going to hear the same production value you hear now. I'm not going to sound as good. Uh, The editing isn't as good. Uh, The audio quality isn't as good because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I just pressed record and started talking. I mean, I had no clue. But the fact that I started doing it and didn't just say, well, I don't know how to do this yet, so I'm not going to do it. The fact that I started is what leads you to the path of figuring it all out. And it sounds like you kind of did the same thing. Exactly. You know, practice makes perfect. Trial and error, you know, start off crappy, you know, and you get better as you become more popular. It's a fine journey, you know, it's nothing to worry about or nothing to prevent you from getting started. But the main thing that I think, especially in terms of YouTube, that people really want, you know, outside of audio quality, you know, if there's anything you can get good, get the audio quality right. But outside of that is content. You know, if people want quality content. And the thing is, you know, a lot of people, they put out content and sometimes it's the same thing that you've heard before. You know, it's nothing unique, you know, it's nothing, you know, really groundbreaking or anything like that. And especially if your production value isn't really up there, they'll say, well, why would I come to this guy's channel when I can go to this other channel and hear the same thing, you know, with higher production quality and everything like that. So it's good to have a unique approach to your content and actually saying, I like to put it as to where you're giving or sharing your own ideas and not the ideas of someone else. It's not about, you know, finding that perfect argument in uh, man versus state and just, you know, reciting an essay verbatim to the camera and just expect that people will just love it. It's about you giving your own personal ideas and also injecting your own personality to it. I know tons of people who say, T, I don't really agree with your content all the time. You know, sometimes I think you're really wrong, but I like your personality. I resonate with you as a character or with you as a personal brand on this platform rather than just your content. So I think that's beneficial, especially in terms of when you're trying to educate people, because if they like you, then they're far more likely to listen to you if you're wrong and they like you than they are to listen to you if you're right, but you're just an unlikable dick. So it's good to have that personable relationship with your audience and, you know, subscriber engagement and things like that. Because I think that's what really makes people stick around and not just give you a thumbs up and never come to your videos again. Yeah, because you're in there. And as we all know, um, the comment section on YouTube can be a a treacherous place to navigate. But uh, I see you in there. You're always interacting with people and responding to things and really getting involved in the conversation. And I I think the, the, the ability to keep people to feel like they're engaged, like you're not just there to preach to them. You're actually up there to communicate with them and keep that dialogue going. Uh, well beyond the initial video. Yeah, I try to, you know, and in most of my videos, I try to, you know, end with a question or something for people to answer in the comments, or I just suggest that people give their thoughts and let me know what they think, because I'm not only doing YouTube to put my ideas out there, I'm also doing it to receive information, you know. The main reason I started YouTube was to primarily act as a kind of archive of my thoughts. And basically, when I was on Twitter, you know, whenever I had a discussion with someone, there'd always be someone new the next day talking about the same thing I just talked about yesterday. And I had to go back and explain it all over and things like that. So I figured, you know what, why don't I just make a video on this subject 
And if anyone wants to know my opinion on it, I'll just link them to the video. And then once they had that out of the way, then we could continue further. So, so I, it's kind of like a time save thing. And as I've continued and as I've grown, I've kind of updated some videos. I've made follow-ups to ideas that I had before that I've changed. It's kind of like a digital archive of my own intellectual growth. I think that resonates well with people because, like you said, it's not preachy. It's not like you're trying to come off as you have all the answers and you know everything. No, I know I screw up all the time. You know, it's just me sharing my ideas and, you know, putting information out there and hoping that they'll be countered. So not only you can hopefully learn something or get something out of it, whether that be educational or entertainment or whatever, but also so I can hopefully get something out of it and we can both mutually benefit. It's the capitalist approach to anything. You know, I just happen to use it for YouTube. Talid, well, I think your overall attitude is very refreshing, especially in a, a day and age where there are there is so much sort of dogma out there. There's so many people that are just trying to preach and preach and preach, but not be heard and not to listen to others. And I think that uh, your approach is, is the one that we all need to take, not just on YouTube or in podcasts, in life. You know, when we're out there yeah. interacting with actual human beings on a day-to-day basis, we need to do what you're doing. We need to be open to being challenged. We need to welcome challenges. At the same time, we need to do the challenging. You got to do both because if you can't expect other people to accept your challenges if, if you're not going to accept theirs. So uh, I really appreciate all the work you're doing out there. I know I don't need to encourage you to keep it up because you're doing a pretty good job with it. I think you're going to keep doing <laughs> that no matter what I say. But before I let you go, man, why don't you let everybody know just where they can find all your work. It's pretty easy. You know how to use YouTube, you guys. But just in case, let people know where they can find everything thing you're doing, uh, whether it's your videos or, or you're writing over at, at Fee. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, if you want to check out my content, you can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just type in whichever platform you're using, just in the search bar, just type in that guy T. Chances are you'll find me first or second name. You know, maybe the first name is like a spam account, which there is one on Twitter. Just this dead account from like 2011 with like two tweets. I really want that name. <laughs> Do not but, follow uh, that guy. Do not follow yeah, that fake Yeah, he's a, yeah he, he's a waste. Yeah, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, just type in that guy T. Or if you want to check out my written articles on Fee, um, I also post all those to Twitter and Facebook as well. Or you can just go directly to fee.org and search for TJ Brown. Um, and you should find my work there too. All right, Talid. Well, I do appreciate you coming on the show and keep up the great work and keep on roaring, man. Definitely. Thanks for having me on. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with that guy, T, Talid Brown. A really cool guy, a guy who I enjoyed talking to. I looked up at the clock. We had already gotten 10 minutes or so past our agreed upon time. I got to talk to this guy for hours. I hope you find his views as interesting as I do. And you can obviously see more of him by checking out his YouTube channel, That Guy T. You can find him on Facebook, find him on Twitter. He's all over the place and he's doing something admirable, which is not just present his ideas. That's what I do here. It's what we try to do everywhere with our fans on our social media. Over at our Lions of Liberty Forum, the private Facebook group, which you guys can join for free. Just search Lions of Liberty Forum in your search bar. But that is to not just dictate ideas, but to also challenge them, accept challenges, welcome challenges. Not everybody in the Lions of Liberty Forum is a dyed-in-the-wool libertarian. 
Some people there are just sort of learning about the ideas. Other people are actually do come from a different viewpoint, whether it be, you know, former Bernie supporters that are just kind of interested in the ideas. Some people are political atheists who just come in there asking good questions. And that's the kind of productive dialogue that we want to have, that we need to have with people on an individual basis. To me, this podcast, this show is only a launching point uh, for that conversation. I try to bring in compelling guests and have some great conversations and, and get those wheels turning and hopefully make you guys find new ways to continue that conversation yourself, not just in our group and the Lions of Liberty Forum, but in other Facebook groups, on Twitter, in real life, in the comments section of YouTube, at dinner with your family, in the workplace. Although I do advise caution in that one, but you know, once you get to know some people in a, in a certain level, you, you can find ways to bring that stuff up. It happens almost everywhere you go, especially when we have a contentious election. Not that they're all not contentious, but one to the extreme that we just had between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, it's still a ripe time for people to be introduced to new ideas because people still have this stuff fresh on their minds. Maybe with Donald Trump, we'll have the possible benefit of people actually paying attention to the presidency, people actually paying attention to politics. Well, if people are paying attention, guys, that is the time for you to dive in there, the time for you to find ways to advance this conversation. I'm going to keep doing that right here this coming Wednesday when I bring on a fellow by the name of Jim Duncan. He has written an awesome novel called Blood Republic. It's about a civil war that breaks out in the United States due to the corruption and manipulation of two powerful political parties. Hmm, sound vaguely possibly familiar? Maybe a little too realistic? But this is a book that I actually did read and really enjoyed, and uh, we're going to invite the author on to discuss that book and discuss his general view on politics, what inspired him to write it. In the meantime, I want you guys to maybe do some homework. You got a couple days? You can head over to lionsofliberty.com slash bloodrepublic and learn a little bit more about this book, and you can even pick up a copy through our Amazon link through there as well. If you get a, a Kindle version, you could already start reading it before you even hear the interview. How exciting would that be? But be sure to check out Blood Republic. Come on back on Wednesday for that interview. And of course, on Friday, we've got another edition of John Odermatt's weekly look at the broken criminal justice system with Felony Friday. Until next time, guys, live long and live free.